listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. APNIC's Chief Scientist, Jeff Houston, joins us today for his monthly chat to again share some of the interesting insights from IETF 114, this time from the DINRG workgroup, which investigates and discusses open research issues in decentralising infrastructure services, such as trust management, identity management, name resolution, resource asset ownership management, and resource discovery. Jeff, welcome back to Ping. Hi, Robbie. Look, it's great to be back again. So last time we talked about your trip to the DNS OARC and IETF meetings in Philadelphia, specifically discussions around the DNS and DNSSEC. But there was another topic that I wanted to discuss with you, which you and several other authors have recently written on the APNIC blog, which is the centralization of the internet. Now, this is obviously a very complicated topic given the breadth of the internet and its impact on society. But it's a topic that is important to discuss and understand how we got to where we have and what impact such centralization has on the internet, as well as the impact any decentralization might have. So let's just sort of wind it back a bit. The IETF for years has actually benefited from the strong engagement of the research community. If you think about it, we don't know what we're doing. That's okay. You know, it's, it's fine. It's not a big admission. We never did. This was a grand experiment around what does packet switching actually mean? And even now, kind of 50 years into the internet, there are a number of elements where we just don't know what we're doing. And we've always worked closely with the research community. Why? I suppose because the internet was originally a research project and has always strongly had research sort of elements. Even today, there are national academic and research networks that don't just serve the academic and research community, they're an essential part of the business of researching into networking itself. And there are many, in fact, there are more unanswered questions than there are answered ones. Uh, There's a group that thinks, why do we route with integers? IP addresses are just numbers. Why don't we route with names? And it's not a frivolous question. It's actually a really good question. You know, why do we have the DNS separate from addresses? Why don't we just route names? And there's a whole little group of researchers out there having a fine old time in this topic and more power to them. There might be something there. But this one that we're going to talk about, the Decentralized Internet Research Group, it comes from two observations. And the first thing is we didn't realize when we were sort of setting up this internet that we were breeding a monster in the lab. In fact, we were breeding five of them biggest companies I think the world has ever seen. Not by the number of employees, not at all, but by their ability to commandeer wealth and power and social influence on a scale that actually beggars most nations. These are big. Now, you know I'm talking about Alphabet, Meta. I still think that's a silly name. Uh, You know I'm talking about Amazon and Microsoft. And, of course, there are a few others snapping around at their heels. Uh, that are also big, not big everywhere, but really deep in what they do. So Google, amongst us other things, does search like nobody else. Apple, although they don't dominate sales, design the best pieces of a computing environment we've ever had. These things are actually just built for real people. 
It's not a geeky engineer's dream of people. It's real people. This was astonishing. And the leap of faith with Facebook that there was value in (laughs) chit-chat, which I suppose isn't a novel discovery, but these guys managed to just turn it into a goldmine. So we bred some monsters. They're so big that it's hard to see how anyone can compete with them now. And it's not just those five. It's kind of the entire internet is now centralised. So when Google run a public DNS service, 8.8.8.8, a huge amount of the world use them. They're big. Um, When I want my DNS name hosted, I might go to GoDaddy or Route 53. Well, maybe that's the end of my choices. So in a whole bunch of the internet, there are these small group of folk that totally dominate each business sector. And there's no room for competition. There's no upstarts anymore. No matter where you turn, it's already occupied space. And this is a problem. It's a problem because once you start to get folk in the middle who dictate the terms of competition, you've immediately created all the sort of elements of stultifying, static monopoly. As soon as the incumbents say how you can compete, Everyone else loses. So, Jeff, this is a really multifaceted discussion, most of which has to do with policy and economics rather than internet standards that the IETF deals with. So what can this voluntary group of technical minds hope to achieve in decentralising the internet that they've created in essence for free for these cartels? So why is it in the IETF is actually a really good discussion. And oddly enough, it comes from the observation around I'll call it blockchain, but there's a a family of cryptographic systems. Bitcoin is a good example, but there's Ethereum, Namecoin, you name it, some other technology using blockchain. Now, blockchains are weird. Let's think about my money in the bank. What is the bank? And you kind of go, well, that's where they store all the money. And the answer is, I could walk into any branch of my bank and there'd be no money there. Not since COVID times, you know, what's money? It's just entries in a ledger. So what's the bank? Well, it's the bookkeeper. It's the ledger. It's the bunch of folk that write down, well, Jeff has $1 in the bank. Go, Jeff. And someone else has borrowed a dollar from me and go that person who's borrowed a dollar and so on. So There's this kind of suspicion, and if you look at the banks, and most of them have got very rich, the ledger keeper has an extraordinary amount of power, and they get to sort of define the industry. Now, blockchain creates an algorithm that stores information that is not erasable. When you write something in a blockchain ledger, and you compute the checksum and bind it against the checksums of all the previous blocks, once you've done that into place, it's immutable. Nothing can change. Now, how do you get to write into the ledger? Well, I suppose the answer is, depending on the rules of the game, if someone gives me Bitcoin, that's an entry in a ledger, and now I'm able to write into that blockchain when I send Bitcoin to someone else. What it's really saying is I generate a key pair, a public key and a private key. 
And the thing that's sitting inside this ledger, signed by my public key, is my Bitcoin entry, my wallet, if you will. And it's there because my private key is private and I'm the only person that knows. Now, interestingly, you don't need to know my name. There's no identity. It really is anonymous cash. And the ledger is immutable. So if you send me one Bitcoin, thank you very much. Um, (laughs) That's it. I now have it and you don't. And no matter how you you say, but you put a gun to my head, you you threaten me. I want it back. And the answer is Bitcoin doesn't do that. It's immutable. Now, what's happened to the ledger keepers? And the answer is they're not needed. I don't need intermediaries to play this game. Now, Bitcoin is a perverse kind of situation, but there are a whole bunch of these technologies that kind of go, well, we could do the DNS using a thing called Namecoin or some other sort of, you know, latest, greatest idea where instead of paying large amounts of money to ICANN, why don't I just enter the name that I want in a Bitcoin-styled ledger? And then it's mine. And you could do the same. And we could all play this game and not have ICANN as a bookkeeper in the middle. Interesting. What about Web 3.0? Because Web 3.0 is basically Bitcoin for web publishing. I can publish, you can publish, off we go. So what you get the feeling of is that can these technologies bust apart the monopolies? And that's a good question. Do these kinds of decentralized, I'd like to say they're unorchestrated, but they're automatically orchestrated. There's orchestration there, but it's basically by virtue of the algorithms themselves, not because there's, you know, some clerk on a stool with a quill and some ink scribing, Charles Dickens style, (laughs) Jeff owns this name, signed Ebenezer Scrooge. Yeah, that kind of stuff, that doesn't exist. And the research group wanted to look into the question of whether we made conscious decisions about technology that bred centralization. And if the IETF were to make conscious decisions about producing standards for a decentralized name system that didn't necessarily bless any of the you know, existing uh, folk who are promoting schemes, but the underlying architecture, decentralized names, would that work? You've talked about how the name and number system could work, but could it be extended to the underlying routing technology itself? Folk have actually toyed in their head, though it's never come out as a sane sentence in my mind, decentralized blockchain-based addressing and routing. But on the one hand, it actually seems to be able, if it works, to strip out cost. And a whole bunch of the internet has actually been replacing what people do with what computers do for a whole lot less. You know, it's, it's really a replacement industry. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just cheaper. So in some ways, it conforms to the evolutionary path that the internet has set itself on. Well, it's, it's our ever, ever constant search to, to be cheaper than your competition. And, and this sort of strikes some people as a way of doing it. And the dream, and I'll say dream, is that it's very hard for one company to dominate and corner the space. Bitcoin has resisted the power of central governments and central monetary funds. On the other hand, 
It's speculation is uncontrolled, insane, and I can't say enough bad things about it in terms of you might as well just pile your money out on the street and set fire to it. But hope springs eternal. And one of these hopes is that by deliberately going towards these kinds of decentralized automatic ledger-based protocols, we would stop the continued centralization of power in the internet environment. On the other hand, they could be on very powerful drugs and they could be deluding themselves. (laughs) Now, I am an amateur economic historian. I have to admit it. I just play at programming, but my true passion is actually economics. And part of the question, I suppose, in my mind is, does the technology create the outcome or does the economics? In other words, if everyone wanted to do blockchain, wouldn't it be dominated by some central player in the long run? What are the forces that lead to centrality? And are the folk who think technology could intrinsically stop that dreaming? Now, I like that question. It's a a great research question because you can delve back into history and you can compare yesterday and today and actually look at this situation. And the, the research group that met in the ITF had a summary of a workshop from a year ago where myself and Christian Huitmer, uh, who, who worked for one of the other monstrous companies, Microsoft, for many, many years, talked about this whole issue of the economics of the internet and why are we in the boat we're in? Why, you know, are five companies just dominating our world? And was it the fault of the technology choices? And are there technology choices that could weaken that stranglehold in the future? Or is this a natural condition? Abandon all hope now. So what does history tell us, Jeff? So you have to go back to post-Civil War America and the conditions just after the Civil War ended because a number of things had happened which were actually phenomenally important. Uh, One was the railroads, because if you had cheap transport, you could move goods. So you could make a widget here and a wheel there and a coal mine over here and so on and bring them all together and presto, you're making steam locomotives. If you have a telegraph, you can see if production is happening and consumption and factories and organization. And so all of a sudden, a whole bunch of industry stops being a local municipality, town, village industry, and starts becoming a joint venture involving thousands of people. And this is exactly what happened in an age around the 1870s and 1880s in America. And it was called the Gilded Age because of a book by Mark Twain, who looked at the New rich, and my God, they were rich, richer than anything in America had ever seen before, because America, although it was rich in natural resources, was about it. But in the Gilded Age, we saw J.P. Morgan, still a bank today. We saw uh, the Rothschilds. We saw um, Andrew Carnegie, John Rockefeller, the man behind AT&T, Theodore Vale, uh, George Westinghouse of the Westinghouse Company that ended up making uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles for the United States. Uh, Thomas Edison founded General Electric. These were incredibly rich companies. 
And they all started around the same time because the Civil War broke up the agrarian workforce. Huge dislocation. Everyone went to cities, and all of a sudden, with the railway system and telegraph, you could actually make national enterprises. Europe sent them money, huge amounts of money. And so that offshore investment just ballooned into production of goods at an industrial scale in America. And what had happened was these companies started to grow way faster than the regulation, way faster than our rules. Because America, like many other ex-British colonial systems, was a collection of states weakly bound by almost an emasculated federal system. And so the states held all the power, not the feds. But when the company started to grow bigger than a state, the feds were sitting there going, but, but what do we do? And oddly enough, Andrew Carnegie, John Rockefeller, <laughs> Theodore Vale had answers. Leave it to us. It's just fine. We know what we're doing. Just leave it to us. And of course, when the incumbents start setting the rules, you know you're in a really, really bad place. Because now you've created a system that you can't just dismember in the next year or two. It's going to take you, oh, a century or more. And that's precisely what happened. Because these things started to get out of control. US Steel was the, one of the largest and most valuable companies. And they were ruthless. The railway companies, the railway barons were ruthless. And so along came a thing called the Sherman Act. And it was basically going to protect the public from the pitfalls of big companies like Google, like Microsoft, like Apple. The Sherman Act was written against them, but not them at the time, because we're talking 1890 or so. It was written against you know, their predecessors at the time. And it basically said, you can't set things up so that you can't admit competition. You can't create monopolies. You can't restrain other people from trading. And if you do, we, the feds, are going to walk in and break you up and dismember this gigantic combine that you've created. We're going to use new federal powers. And the politicians at the time were, yay, gung-ho. And so they did it a few times and thought, this is great. And in 1911, drunk with power, <laughs> they turned their attention to three of the biggies. Uh, Standard Oil, global oil company still around today. American Tobacco, people still smoke and of course, General Electric. And they were sort of successful, but they were so effective that it caused the Great Recession, or should we call it bust or panic, of 1912. And the politicians went, oh my God, you mean to say these folk are holding the economy together? And so this started a very, very long debate within America about what should we do about big companies. And this wasn't the last. Think of the car companies. In 1913, um, America made 485,000 cars, units, you know, things with engines and wheels. The world made 606,000. Even 13 years later, just before the Great Bust, 
Ford, GM and Chrysler had 80% of the global market share of cars. But there was no talk of Sherman Act. There was no talk of antitrust. Because oddly enough, the debate had moved on. It wasn't about national monopolies anymore. It was about global monopolies. And in the global game, America was winning. Why should we cut these people off at the knees? That's un-American. And so in some ways, they kind of ignored this problem about antitrust for a little while. But the debate was still going on. And it's a debate that's relevant today. And I think the best person to actually encapsulate this was Louis Brandeis, who was on the US Supreme Court in that era in the 1920s and actually in the 30s. And the argument is, is big bad or is what big does that is bad? Is just the sheer size of these enterprises enough to break them apart? Or do you have to wait for them to transgress some sin, to walk over some mythical line? Is it their actions that damn them or their mere size? Now, his argument was that when you get big, you carry political favour. In fact, when you get really big, you create your own politics. Everyone rushes to do your bidding. Everyone rushes to regulate what you want. No one's going to crack the whip because you're employing lots of people. You're paying, presumably paying taxes, although today's world, that's dubious. And in some ways, you are the economy. And as the Americans proved to themselves in 1912, take us on and you're going to have an economic downturn. It's going to harm a lot of people. The downside of this is terrible. But isn't that really that you let them grow too big in the first place? And Louis Brandeis argued, it's big that's the problem. Not the behaviour, just big. Now, that debate was also happening with the president, Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, 1909. who was much more optimistic. Maybe presidents are at that time optimists. And he thought it's all about economies of scale. Big can be good. Big can produce benefits. We have sufficient power to curb them, he said. So this is fine. And it's that kind of debate we're seeing again today. And we're seeing it right now in this debate between states and company. Who are the biggest lobbyists in terms of public spending to lobby the US you know, Congress and Senate, the US feds? Which industry? Well, obviously the internet industry. Obviously Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook all have their professional folk up there in the lobbies spending, and it's on record, spending money like crazy to make sure that the regulations are what they want. Why didn't the internet get handed to the ITUT as just another international telecommunications system, as we did with everything that, if you will, came before? Because America was winning. Well, it's nice that you say America, but in actual fact, you're not right. AT&T didn't want it. AT&T were paying out a fortune in international call accounting settlement rates for telephony. And what they saw in the internet was America's emerging dominance, correctly seen, thank you AT&T, and they dreaded an international settlement regime 
that had them forking out even more money to other countries based on an internet settlement tariff that was entirely to the disadvantage of US enterprises. So they spent their considerable Washington political capital in convincing the Clinton government at the time that the last thing, the last thing they ever wanted to do was to hand control of the internet over to the ITUT. Now, at the same time, there's this other nice bunch of folk who are sort of amusing uh, the International Postal Union. It's about the same kind of organization. It just coordinates the post rather than communications. The Americans are quite okay with the IPU. They're just a friendly bunch of Swiss gnomes in Geneva who are just slightly funny, you know, and it's wonderful. They love them. But the ITUT, no, I'm sorry. That, that's the, you know, Dante's seventh layer of hell or whatever because of AT&T, because the industry had convinced the politicians of an agenda that the politicians didn't have a clue. But all of a sudden, we're all paying that price, if you will, of trying to create a different regime that is based around the private sector rather than international treaty systems. And oddly enough, the outcome has been the rise of pan-national global monopolies because the national regulatory strictures have been largely ignored because there's no ITU-like body to have even thought about it in the first place. The world was Facebook's oyster and Amazon's and Google's. Even Alibaba, even the Chinese had a brief sort of renaissance in looking across the, the space and going, we can do this globally. And they're basically right. So in some ways, we handed the internet to them not because of the technology, but because of the, if you will, the economics and the politicking of big. Big created this to be bigger, and the rest of us never had a say. So if you now look at the largest companies on the planet, take all the shares in all the publicly traded companies and multiply them by the share price. Apple, worth over a trillion, I think. Microsoft, Amazon. Alphabet, Facebook, Tencent was there. It's no longer there. Thank you, China. Tesla's up there. And of course, our dear friends, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. The giants of today's world are actually all digital, all digital. And with the exception of TMSC and and probably Tencent, the rest are all American. It's the replay of the car situation of 1920. So who's going to break them apart? The Americans? You've got to be joking. It's just making so much money. But more to the point, too, it's making the rules for the rest of us. That's what I wanted to get to as well in terms of you've talked how much they've been lobbying from a governmental level. Are they also lobbying at the standards level, too? And is this why this group has come about in the ITF to curb this influence? Well, if they had any influence on standards, it would be to try and discredit some of these blockchain-style systems. Now, let me get very biased and opinionated here. It doesn't need their help to discredit these systems. They are already completely silly and stupid and actually don't work well. To understand that something is in a blockchain, you have to keep all the transactions together as a single entity. Every historical transaction is sitting in your backpack. You can't discard history. You have to keep the lot. And every time you add a new transaction, 
it doesn't replace one. It just makes it bigger. So you've got to have almost a religious faith that Moore's Law will keep on delivering and that you could store petabytes for no price at all and you can compute for no price at all. You can't. Already, the Bitcoin madness was consuming a visible percentage of the world's energy production. When you start creating massive data centers whose only job is to actually run graphics cards to try and mine a Bitcoin before the you know, graphics card beside you, something's gone incredibly wrong with this world. It's dumb. That's just a waste of everyone's time. The human ledger keepers are cheaper. So we've managed to make this whole computerized, centralized ledger system, even before it got serious, into what I think is a gigantic bonfire of stupidity, avarice, and greed, you know, without any tangible outcome. It doesn't need any help from the big players to discredit that rubbish. It's its own worst problem. In that case, where do we turn to curb the big? Oh, well, let's just have a look at this and think, what's the problem? So let's just understand, let's say Google. They're an advertiser. Everything else they do, they do for fun and games. What they do for money is advertising. But they understood, and I think it was their chief economist many years ago, Hal Varian, he might still be with them, who said, look, the only difference between an annoying ad and a downright helpful suggestion is knowledge of the consumer. If I knew that you wanted to have some coffee right now, I could flash an ad up and it wouldn't appear annoying to you. It'd go, oh, yeah, you're right. I think I need a coffee. The better knowledge you have of the consumer, the more the ad is almost a gentle nudge. It panders to what you want. And it is actually all about understanding you and your tastes. Even Facebook is all about keeping you in Facebook. And the only way they can keep you, they can't force you, is you want to be there. Some part of your brain is going, yes, yes, I wonder what else is going on. Or TikTok, wow, three hours have passed. What fun I'm having, you know. And so these companies are catering to what we want. Now, you may take an argument that humans want silly things, and I'd be the last to disagree with you because humans want silly things, but they're not evil in that respect. Are they exploitative of their workers? Well, as far as I can see, the line of hopeful young people wanting to be employed by Google is long enough that if they're an ex- child exploitation factory, you know, <laughs> oh my God, it would be loved, I'd love to be one of them. They actually aren't. They're the opposite. They're almost model employers. The conditions are fantastic. Do they distort the markets? Well, Google needs advertisers. Other markets exist. Yes, they exist on Google's terms. Same with Amazon. But in some ways, they're so helpful to others because that's their source of income. Do I pay a premium for using any of these players' services? Well, generally not. And so if you think about it, if their entire business plan is giving me what I want, what's the problem you're trying to fix? Oh, they're very big. Yes, but they give me what I want at a price I want. We should get rid of them. Why? So I should pay 20 bucks what I currently pay $2 for? What's the winner here? And that's actually a very difficult question to answer. 
Because when you get these large players concentrating on what consumers want, then that's not a liability. The days of the Gilded Age, you could argue that if you worked the US Steel, you worked you know, 80 hours a week and got paid three zlotties, and you're only 10 years old. It was obviously exploitative. Labor was hideously abused. This is not abuse of labor. Now, you could say, giving me what I want is a bad thing. You could be right. But that's a very Calvinist view of the world, is it not? Very puritanical. And intrinsically, giving me what I want is not evil. I may make bad choices, and you can tell me that. But is it evil? Well, no. So users aren't going to lead the revolt, as far as I can see. They love their phones. They love having all this stuff there, right there in front of them. They love not paying for search, not paying for Gmail. They'll happily trade off their profile for ads, which, as far as they can see, don't annoy them too much, in return for all these freebies. Users don't want this to be changed. What about governments? Hmm. We're both Australians, Robbie, and you and I have seen uh, the previous government uh, take on Google, prompted by our good friend Rupert Murdoch, who was saying, Google is stealing our news. How dare they? They must pay us money for a news feed. And Google kind of argues, look, if we didn't exist, your newspapers would have a circulation of 10. The only reason why people read your stuff is us. What's your problem? But nevertheless, Google relented and said, you know, well, okay, we'll pay you a small amount of money and make the problem go away. Yay, cries the government, victory. No, it wasn't. It really wasn't. Even the Europeans with GDPR, you are treating users' data too casually. We're going to fine you billions of euros. And Google goes, is that all? Okay, fire away. (laughs) It's not much money. They're so big. And so the previous kinds of fines and impositions just simply get lost. So is regulation going to stop this? The Americans really have been very reluctant. They handed the antitrust action against Microsoft over to the Europeans, who just fluffed it, just didn't know what to do. In fact, it was really Google Docs that broke up some of the monopolies of Microsoft. So it was Google that actually attacked Microsoft, not a regulatory system. And that's it. Almost no other governments have proved effective here. So regulation isn't going to make an ounce of difference. Okay. So as you've said, users and governments aren't capable of decentralizing these cartels. So what hope does the Dinaji group have, especially given the folly of blockchain technology that it's proposing? So this was not about the technology defining the business. The real thing was that this business is actually about replacing expensive components with cheap, replacing human labor with computer mediation. You sort of sit there and think about your workday. How much of my time do I spend negotiating with computerized systems rather than people? I talk to fewer and fewer people, and I think most folk talk to fewer and fewer people. If I sit for a telephone, you know, helpline, I'll wait for five hours and get answered by a frontline person who can take my name and number and reassure me that the world is fine and someone will call me back next year. And that's it. If I want some action, I have to go to the webpage and negotiate with their computer. 
the whole thing about all these COVID forms and documents and clearances. It's just me playing with their computers. What makes this work is scale. Because the one thing we've managed in this computerization is almost the impossible dream. I can make it massive. I can make it big, but I can customize to a market of one at the same time. So I can bring all the power of volume and all of the attraction of a customized answer at the price of mass market, at a price that's just not just seductively cheap, irresistibly cheap. So in some ways, this was always going to happen with computers. And whether it's a company named Google founded by you know, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, or a company named some other startup that you've never heard of because they didn't make it, was actually random luck. It was just the way you know, the dice fell on the day. They were just right place, right time, rather than some phenomenal insight that the other, you know, six billion of us or five billion at the time didn't have. No, just luck. So it was actually computers and our trained down computing technology that's got us to where we are today. It's not the domain name system. It's not ICANN. It's not Google. It's not, you know, any of those ledger keepers or intermediaries and so on is actually the root cause of where we are. Blame the silicon. And the funny thing is, is it evil? Now, we're now going well away from technology, well away from economics, and verging into some very deep parts of philosophy. There is one, I think, almost disturbing statistic about our modern world. Google have 92% of market share of search. You go, well, okay, it's the only search engine. We all use it. But what we found in the American truth wars back in, you know, the Trump era was that these search engines define truth. It's almost like a dictionary defines your language. And these search engines define what we talk about, the terms we use to talk about it, and they define our conversations. A private enterprise, just one, is so dominant in our world that it truly, in insidious ways that I don't even know that they appreciate, completely defines our terms of engagement with each other as humans. Now, if that isn't scary, I don't know how to scare you. Did it only take us 10 years to get to that rather horrible place? The answer is yeah. It only took us 10 years to get rid of most other forms of interaction and invite that search company to be the universal mediator of human interaction. And that's the bit that I don't like. But I don't think blockchain or any other decentralized technology is going to help us fix that. As you said, it really comes back to the user, you feel. And until the user is upset about the product, then change ain't going to happen because they're getting something for free and they're getting the majority of what they want for free. In the days before COVID, remember them? I do. I used to go to these cities which were very big and where I come from, where I live, and let me tell you, listeners, Canberra is not a big place. Public transport is buses and they come once an hour. Whereas if you go to Hong Kong... Shanghai, New York, 
the public transport's bustling. You know, lots of people crowding on. And, and the name of the game is find a seat and get out your phone. Even if you can't find a seat, get out your phone. Everyone is buried inside their phone. Well, I don't call it a phone. It's the internet. Buried inside it. And if you really wanted to change the terms of interactions between us and this environment we've built, somehow you've got to make those devices way less attractive, way less seductive, way less distracting. Now, is Facebook going to do that? (laughs) Yeah, right. Can we regulate Facebook to be less, you know? Can we regulate TikTok? You know, no. But that's almost the heart of what we've been doing to ourselves collectively, just creating this phenomenally distractive environment and making it better every year. I need a bigger, more powerful chip in my phone to do augmented reality and so on and so forth. And it just goes on. Now, I might sound a bit like a Luddite, and I'm not. I'm, I'm fascinated with technology. But like I said, if you really want to understand the problem, size is not really it. Size was a byproduct. The real problem was actually this ability to turn the power of computing into the power of distraction and actually come between humans and mediate their interactions, their conversations, their work, their play, everything. And that was sort of the unintended consequence of all of this. Now, I'd like to say that we touched all of this in the DINRG meeting at the IETF. We discussed this at length. No, we didn't. (laughs) Obviously, we kind of stopped well short of that and, and just sort of looked at this, I suppose, in its most blandest form of going, does technology create big or does big create itself? You know, is big a natural artifact? But where it goes from there is something I think that almost goes beyond a research group. I could say in deference to erstwhile folk like Mark Nottingham, who's busy writing a draft about technology and centralization, there are folk who seriously believe that there are technology choices and we can make them that would curb some of this aggregation. I happen not to agree with that stance personally. I, I don't understand how that could work. Humans are just obsessed with cheap. They're obsessed with free. The power to harness resources at scale and then bring them back to bear with an undeniably cheap product just trumps everything else. Sorry to use that word. Uh, just overrides um, everything else in this world, you know. And it's that that's the problem rather than the particular choice of technology. So, yes, fascinating, thought-provoking, and kind of this introspection of where are we and why. So to round this off, if you really, really want to be disturbed, and rather than pleasant bedtime reading, it's almost the the forerunner of nightmares, Uh, there is a very good book written by uh, Sir Shana Zuboff called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which actually talks about what we are today. Because if the humans are the product and understanding our desires and needs is the goal, my God, we're good at it these days. The surveillance. I'm like, you know, Google knows where I am right now today physically. They just know which country I'm in, what I'm doing, everything. They're really good at this. And it's kind of, where does this go? Read that book, you won't sleep well. I'm sure you can find that on Amazon too. And they'll give you a lot of good recommendations for other books associated with the topic as well. (laughs) 
Oh, Robbie, you're there too. I think you're as cynical as I am sometimes. What can we do about it? We can talk about it. Burying it under the carpet doesn't help. We need to talk about it. We need to understand, I think, how our changing society. And we need to actually involve the technology side, even if the technology side is going to say, there are no answers here in technology. You've got to look elsewhere to try and understand how to come to terms with this. But that's a good answer, as distinct from, no, I don't know, uh, which is not a good answer. So I think we need some kind of societal response. And I don't think the markets are going to correct themselves. I don't think, you know, Google version two replacing Google version one is going to be any better. It's more of the same. Who was it? Look smart or get smart or all the portal factories of yesterday became the Facebooks of today. They'll become something else tomorrow, but they're not going to change their spots. It's the same thing. And if you truly want to sort of create different terms of interaction, then you have to think deeper and harder and be prepared for something that's not evolutionary. I've been listening to a podcast. It's called the Revolutions Podcast. The host talks about the revolutions that have happened in societies. The Russian, of course. The French, of course. The Mexican, of course. We've done a lot. And actually thinking about it, what you find is that when the incumbents cement themselves into place and sit there and just squat across the space, imposing status, because after you've got rid of your competition, the worst enemy is future. And somehow you've got to train the future to map your dreams, and that's stasis. But that creates tensions that don't get resolved in little ways. It gets resolved in a massive bang, the bang of the Russian Revolution, the bang of the French Revolution. And you kind of worry that the only way this is going to get solved is with the same degree of misery, disruption, and displacement that a revolution brings, and that anything more gentle just simply won't cut it. Now, I hope that doesn't happen. You don't wish a revolution on anyone. It's messy. But, you know, we seem to be heading down that path again. And if you want to know how all this ends, revolutions will tell you a lot about how all this is likely to end, whether you like it or not. So fundamentally, we're cursed to repeat history and decentralization or revolution or whatever name you want to attach to it is no closer than it was at the start. <laughs> We've gone way off technology, I know. I'll try and come back next time. No, no, no need to apologize, Jeff. As you said, these are uncomfortable conversations, but they're important to have and understand where the influence lies. And again, it all comes back to the health of the internet at the moment. A lot of users would say the internet is healthy because I get all my content for free and I get my TikTok videos for free. I'm a happy user. But understanding what is happening in the background, which is a combination of technology, economics, sociology and philosophy, is what we like to talk about here on this podcast as they all have a role to play in the health of the network. Yes, it has context. And yes, today's discussion is about that larger context, historical and, and current about where we are and where does it lead. And while the answers might be a little bit disturbing, I think they are necessary to think about, yes. Indeed. Uh, we'll put the links up to the DINRG working group in the show description so people can follow it further. 
as well as a link to several posts on the topic that Jeff and other guest authors have contributed on the APNIC blog. Jeff, thanks again for joining us on Ping. Thanks, Robbie. It's been a pleasure. For listeners, thank you for hanging on this long. I hope you've enjoyed it. Yes, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe, write a review and tell your colleagues about it. Finally, if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at apenic.net or our APNIC social media channels. And check out the new Measurement at APNIC mailing list to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, and or to seek feedback from the community on your research and measurement project. And be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.